I want to thank you all for coming and braving the weather. And I see some of my students here. Thank you all for coming, especially. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to thank the Nutrition Center before you leave real quick. Um, I, as Sonia mentioned, some of the work I'll be presenting today was funded by a seed grant from the Nutrition Center, and so we're very appreciative of that. We have a grant at the NIH that's pending right now that we hope will get funded on vitamin D and breast cancer and, and others in the work, so thank you all for that. Um, I also want to say that right now there's a, a seminar going on at the Cancer Prevention and Control Program, which is my other affiliation besides the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. And um, one of my co-PIs on the Nutrition Center grant is giving that seminar over at CPCP right now, so she couldn't be here, and probably some of our students are over there at this time, um, which is unfortunate, but uh, I'll fill her in later. Um, and also wanted to say, for those of you who don't know what we do at the Cancer Prevention Control Program, a lot of what we do is related to health disparities, racial disparities, and cancer outcomes. And uh, vitamin D is no exception. I'll be presenting some evidence today for how vitamin D might be explaining some of the racial disparities that we see in cancer outcomes. Okay, so if you haven't heard, vitamin D is a really hot topic right now. This is just kind of a crude graph showing um, a search in PubMed of vitamin D and cancer for the past 30 years, and you can see that there's just been, you know, an explosion of, of research in this area. Um, this last bar doesn't even include all of 2010, of course, so it's not the whole five-year period. And I looked, you know, in January there were already 20 papers published on vitamin D and cancer of this year alone. So it's a really hot topic. Um, there's been a lot of debate about it, and I'm going to present some of the epidemiologic literature um, suggesting that there is a role of vitamin D, in particular in breast cancer. So the outline will be, I'll talk about vitamin D, what is it, where does it come from, um, some of the anti-cancer properties, though again, I'm going to focus more on the epidemiologic literature. Uh, I want to talk about some of the challenges of studying vitamin D, because there's a, a number of different ways for measuring vitamin D, um, it comes from different places, um, and so there are certain challenges in, as in all of epidemiology, but certainly with vitamin D, different ones that we have to think about. And then I'm going to present results from some of our pilot studies. Um, again, we have one from the Nutrition Center. We had another one from the South Carolina Cancer Center uh, where we examined vitamin D status among breast cancer patients in South Carolina. And I'll conclude and give you some future directions about where we're going with all this. So vitamin D is known as the sunshine vitamin. Um, and that is because most of our uh, exposure, most of the body's stores of vitamin D come from exposure to, to sunlight. Um, so when the ultraviolet radiation, the UVB rays, hit the skin, they convert 7-dehydrocholesterol to this pre-vitamin D form, um, which is further converted to vitamin D. Um, there are other sources of vitamin D, obviously. We can get it from the diet. We can get it from supplements. There are a limited number of foods that contain vitamin D, however, so diet is usually not a big source of vitamin D um, unless you're just not spending any time outdoors, you're not spending any time in the sun. Um, there are two forms of vitamin D, D2 and D3. D3 is, is what we form when we're exposed to sunlight. D2 and D3 both can be um, contained in foods, however, um, and in vitamin supplements. Right now, the companies are um, using vitamin D3 for the most part because there's some literature to, to suggest that vitamin D3 may be more bioavailable, may be more active than D2. There's other literature to suggest they're equal, so um, at this point, it's kind of, it's unknown which one is better, but the supplement companies are, I guess, erring on the side of caution and using D3 for most of the supplements nowadays. 
So vitamin D is actually not the active form um, in the body. It has to be hydroxylated. It goes through two hydroxylations, one in the liver to 25-hydroxy-D, again in the kidney and other tissues to 125-dihydroxy-D. And 125-dihydroxy-D is actually, that is the biologically active form, um, and it works via the vitamin D receptor. Um, and as we know, from a historical standpoint, vitamin D is really important in bone health. We've known that for a while. Ricketts is the deficiency syndrome, and back in the 1930s, it was discovered that if you give kids cod liver oil, you can basically eradicate rickets. Um, and so we've known a lot about calcium and phosphorus metabolism and, um, and bone health in relation to vitamin D. But more recently, it's been discovered that vitamin D receptor-mediated activity occurs in the breast, prostate, and colon, and other tissues. And so that's why there's been this impetus to study vitamin D in relation to cancer and some of these organ sites. Now we can measure serum concentrations of vitamin D, so circulating levels of vitamin D, and that can give us a, an estimate of, of a person's vitamin D status. Um, we actually do this by measuring 25-hydroxy-D because the biologically active form is tightly regulated, it has a short half-life, and it doesn't really reflect recent exposure to vitamin D or to sunlight or other factors affecting vitamin D. So we measure 25-hydroxy-D. You can go to your doctor's office and say, I want to have my vitamin D measured, and, and they can do that for you. And in fact, a lot of doctors have jumped on the bandwagon with all the hype about vitamin D now, and we're finding that a lot of women, at least when we were trying to enroll them in our study, had already had their vitamin D level checked. Some of them were already on vitamin D supplements, and that created a challenge for us in trying to recruit because that was one of our eligibility criteria was to, um, to get women who were not taking supplements. So. Um, this is the one we measure in blood for a clinical status. So one of the myths out there, or one, I guess one of the, the interesting things about vitamin D is that um, vitamin D deficiency is, is present. And insufficiency and deficiency is actually very common, even in the United States, where we tend to think of overnutrition as one of the problems. Um, vitamin D is one of those vitamins where we actually see a lot of deficiency and insufficiency. And so if you think about ways that um, are things that might affect our sunlight exposure, our ability to tan or sunburn, these are also the types of things that are going to affect our vitamin D status. So um, working in an office. So, you know, I lived in Chicago a long time ago, and there would be days I'd go to the office, come home, and never see the sun. Um, so it's possible that, you know, and, and I wasn't working 10-hour days. I mean, that, that was just... <laughs> The time frame of sun exposure there is so low. So working in an office all day, not even getting outside, is obviously going to affect our, our exposure to the sunlight and then our ability to produce vitamin D. But even if we are spending time in the sun, other things like wearing protective clothing, sunscreen, smog and pollution, cloud cover, shade, <clears throat> all of those things will affect, negatively affect um, our vitamin D status. And skin Skin pigmentation is also something that will affect it. So individuals with darker skin have to spend more time in the sun to create or to synthesize the same amount of vitamin D as individuals with lighter skin. And latitude affects it. So we're actually pretty lucky in Colombia. Um, if you draw a line between Los Angeles and Colombia across the United States, we can pretty much make vitamin D year-round. The sun is strong enough for us to do that year-round and, and anything south of that. But those people in Boston all the way like through Northern California, anything above that, the UV rays are not strong enough to create vitamin D in the winter months like November through February. So 
latitude definitely has an impact on vitamin D status as well. Okay, <clears throat> there are um, no standards right now for defining deficiency or insufficiency of vitamin D. Um, there are certain cut points that have been used in the literature, and I'm listing them here. These are the ranges that people tend to use when we want to define deficiency or insufficiency status. Um, I've, I've listed it in both units, nanograms per ml or, or nanomoles per liter. I'm going to try to focus on nanograms per ml in this talk, but you'll see there's some slides from previous literature where they used the other units, and, and so just try to keep those straight. Um, but deficiency is generally defined as anything less than um, 20 nanograms per ml, then insufficiency is between 20 and 30. And vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, so there are toxic levels. Um, this is very controversial, though, and, and um, in general, you don't see toxic symptoms um, until you get to around the 200 nanograms per ml range. So. Um, I've already mentioned some of the determinants of vitamin D status, foods, you know, fortification of foods, supplements. Um, we talked about some of the, the epidermal synthesis type factors that affect it. Um, but there are also some endogenous influences, age, gender, obesity, of course, malabsorption syndromes, liver or kidney disease, and then genetic defects in some of the enzymes that are involved in vitamin D metabolism or vitamin D activity. And so I just wanted to provide um, a few slides to show you some of the evidence for the relationship for some of these other factors. So in Haines, there's been several publications in Haines now looking at vitamin D status um, among the population. And this graph is showing um, that vitamin D decreases by age um, and that vitamin D is lower among non-Hispanic blacks as compared to Mexican-Americans, non-Hispanic whites. Um, and again, this is consistent with what we know that about skin pigmentation being um, affecting our ability to produce vitamin D. And this has been replicated in other studies. There also tends to be a, a slight difference between men and women. This is looking at percentage of people who are um, defined as deficient or less than 50 animals per liter. Um, women tend to have higher prevalence of deficiency or insufficiency than men. And then there's been some work looking at body fat or BMI. Um, again from NHANES, and I just picked out one of the, the age categories for white women, and you can see that with increasing body fat or increasing BMI, serum concentrations, concentrations of 25-hydroxy-D decrease. And we don't know exactly why this is. I mean, you can speculate that um, vitamin D being a fat-soluble vitamin um, in individuals with more fat stores, the, the vitamin D is being sequestered away rather than circulating in the blood. Um, you could also speculate that, you know, people who with higher BMI are not spending as much time outdoors, perhaps wearing more protective clothing so that they're, they're not exposed to the sun as much and their, their vitamin D levels are lower. But we're not exactly sure how those factors um, are related to the relationship between BMI and, and vitamin D. Um, so I've talked about then, you know, some of the causes of vitamin D deficiency. Um, there's also some medications that affect it. But then what are the consequences? You know, why do we care? And so there have been a number of different health conditions and diseases that have been associated with vitamin D um, over the years. I've already mentioned some of the bone health issues that we've known about for a while. But there have been a number of other things like depression, infections, lung disease, diabetes, autoimmune disease, and then a number of different cancers that have been associated with vitamin D. A lot of this work, with the exception of the um, fractures and, and bone health, but most of this is, is based on just observational epidemiologic 
data. There's very few clinical trials as of yet uh, to support most of these findings. But I will show you results from a couple of clinical trials now in breast cancer that are pretty interesting. So we do have some established guidelines for how much vitamin D is required um, for intake. And these were established by the Institute of Medicine back in the 1990s. They're basically based on optimal levels for um, improving bone health and maintaining strong bones. Um, and you can see that they're different for different age groups. 2,000 IUs per day is the upper limit right now that's recommended. Um, however, in 2008, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended increasing it to 400 IUs per day for children. Um, just because of the evidence, the reemergence, I guess, of rickets that has occurred as of late. So, and especially in, in babies who are breastfed, if the mothers are deficient in vitamin D to start with, and the babies are not going to get much from the breast milk. And so, um, there's been a suggestion or a recommendation to supplement uh, children and, and babies. Um, and then other scientists are challenging this upper limit, the 2,000 IUs per day, suggesting it could be increased to up to 10,000 IUs per day without having toxic effects. So there's a lot of debate about that in the literature right now. So if we think about ways to increase vitamin D or improve our vitamin D status, of course, as a nutritionist, I'm thinking immediately of food. What about food sources? Um, unfortunately, there are very few foods that contain vitamin D naturally. Um, there aren't very many that are fortified right now, although you probably see on your orange juice box, you know, that's starting to be fortified more commonly and, and other things are too. But if you look at some of the fatty fish, for example, um, salmon, you know, 200, 300 IUs per day, or per, per portion, you know, if we're talking about getting, needing about 2,000 or up to 10,000 IUs per day, you're going to have to eat a lot of fish to get that. Um, and you can see that the effect of cooking, that frying uh, fish has, uh, reduces the amount of vitamin D in it. Um, you know, tuna fish canned in oil, about 200 IUs in a serving. Milk has about 100. You'll see some of your ready-to-eat cereals are fortified, but again, they only have about 40 IUs, and then eggs have about 20. So what about solar UVB as a source? Um, you know, we've done a really good job of recommending sunscreen and protecting everyone from the sun. And I think the dermatologists are in an uproar about all the vitamin D hype because they're really worried about sending out mixed messages to the public. Um, and it's, it's an important concern because there really is no safe dose of, of UV radiation. It's a carcinogen. Um, and you can see this is basically just trying to show you that the wavelength um, associated with making or forming vitamin D, which is this bar, is the same as that that's associated with sunburn and suntan and skin cancer. Um, and I'm, I'm bringing this up, but you know there are sunbeds that claim to be safe. They use UVA rays mostly. Um, so their wavelength is up here, not in the same range as where you see skin cancer and sunburn. However, you're also not going to be making vitamin D, very much vitamin D, from using a sunbed. So, um, you know, what, what can we say? You know, it's a, it's a kind of a conundrum. It would be really hard to make any kind of public health recommendation um, about UV radiation in terms of improving vitamin D. So <clears throat> that leads to supplements. Um, and I think a lot of people are jumping on uh, supplements as the form of, of uh, intervention. Um, I just want to exercise caution. And I want to show this graph because I think we, we all should be very cognizant of um, randomized controlled trials of other types of dietary factors like beta carotene and selenium and vitamin E have basically um, had null results um, or 
in the case of the CARAT study and the ATBC study of beta carotene and lung cancer, they actually found an increased risk of lung cancer among smokers or asbestos workers who are taking beta carotene. So I think we have to exercise a lot of caution um, when jumping from you know, one exposure to a supplement and putting it in a supplement form and, and dosing with that. Um, this, this study was back in 1998. There have been other randomized clinical trials since then, like the SELECT trial, which was selenium and vitamin E. There was a lot of evidence from other clinical trials that vitamin E or selenium might be protective against prostate cancer, and then the SELECT trial had null results as well. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'll show you. There, there actually is a clinical trial ongoing right now, and I'll show you the, the details of that later. Um, so having said all that, then I want to move into some of the research we've been doing on breast cancer and talk about some of the, the epidemiologic literature that's out there and the challenges that exist for studying um, vitamin D. And I think that um, the, the clinical trials show us that um, we can't, you know, clinical trials tend to be the gold standard in epidemiology, but we can't always rely on clinical trials to give us the answer for the questions that we want to ask. And I think cancer is, is one of those um, health outcomes where it's really hard to study in clinical trials, especially with dietary factors or other exposures. Okay, so let's talk about breast cancer and racial disparities. Um, so actually, the disparity in breast cancer really lies in mortality. Incidence uh, in breast, of breast cancer is higher in whites than African Americans, but mortality is higher among African Americans than whites. And we can see that mortality um, is greater among African Americans and whites for a number of different cancer sites. Breast cancer is here um, on the list, and anything with you know ratio of greater than one is basically saying that it's higher among African Americans than whites. So that's true for a number of different cancers, um, but cancers are very different and have different have different risk factors. So uh, it's important to stu study them individually. Um, this was a study done by uh, one of my colleagues, Swan Adams, here at um, USC looking at breast cancer stage at diagnosis by race in South Carolina. Um, so again, we can see that among European Americans, a higher percentage of them are being diagnosed at localized or early stage, better prognosis stage breast cancer as compared to African Americans. And so some of the risk factors for breast cancer include those that are listed here. They tend to reflect things that affect estrogen exposure over the lifetime. So a lot of reproductive factors, early agent menarche, late agent menopause, null parity, late agent first birth. And then there are some other more um, 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 lifestyle factors, things that we might be able to intervene on. So like obesity, physical activity, alcohol intake has a modest association with breast cancer risk. Um, there are some genetic factors like BRCA1 and BRCA2 that really account for a very small percentage of breast cancer cases. And of course, family history of breast cancer is another risk factor. Would you like to enlighten us? <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Birch. Yeah, so shift work is now considered a carcinogen, and um, women who engage in shift work are at increased risk for breast cancer. That is true. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Okay. It wouldn't fit on my. It wouldn't fit on my slide. <laughs> No, not, not really the order of importance or anything, no. These are just some risk factors. 
Okay, so in terms of the biology, there, there's been a number of, of experimental and um, animal studies to show that vitamin D has some biologic plausibility in the, in the breast cancer hypothesis. Um, again, the main actions are, are mediated by this vitamin D receptor, which are present in normal breast tissue. Um, and then the biologically active form has anti-proliferative effects. It has all sorts of um, effects on cell cycle things that, that are generally going to be beneficial towards cancer prevention and cancer control. So let's move to the epidemiologic studies then, and I'm going to go over um, examples from some, all of these different um, study designs. Ecologic studies, I'm going to talk about um, cohort and, and case control studies of diet and vitamin D. Um, there have been a few studies of sunlight exposure where we actually tried to assess with a questionnaire sunlight exposure and some behaviors. Um, there have been a few studies now on, on circulating vitamin D in breast cancer. And then, as I mentioned, there have been a couple of, of randomized trials. Okay, so this is one of, of the really interesting studies, I think, that have, have, from an ecologic standpoint, just looked at kind of UV exposure um, or latitude in relation to cancer. Um, and this is from Gorham et al. And they basically just plotted different countries um, by latitude and by their incidence rate. Um, so distance from the equator and then their breast cancer incidence rate. And found this interesting curve, and here's the USA up here. Um, so it suggests the further away you get from the equator, the higher the breast cancer incidence rates, which is, supports the hypothesis. Um, again, this was just in the United States, but um, and on this map, red means worse, those are, are higher. Um, age-adjusted breast cancer mortality rates, blue is better. Um, and so you can see kind of in the Northeast, there tend to be higher uh, mortality rates in breast cancer than in the South. And I don't know what's going on in California. But um, <laughs> obviously, ecologic studies um, have their limitations. They're really just hypothesis generating. You can't control for other confounders. Um, there's no individual assessment. So there could be a number of other different things going on in the countries, for example, or in the different states that could affect breast cancer incidence. But it is interesting that they support the hypothesis. So let's talk about diet. There have been a few studies now that have examined diet or supplemental intake of vitamin D in breast cancer. And I was just going to provide an example of a couple of them that were cohort studies, so these were prospective. Um, this was from the American Cancer Society, and they examined just dietary vitamin D and total vitamin D, meaning supplement in addition to diet. Um, you know, didn't really find much, not much going on, you know, suggestion of an inverse association maybe at these higher levels, but um, jumped around a lot. And similarly, from the Nurses Health Study, another large cohort study out of the Harvard group, um, found that total vitamin D, this is both diet and supplement intake again, with increasing intake, um, not much going on for postmenopausal women, found, again, you know, a suggestion of an inverse association for premenopausal women. But if you think about it, um, just measuring vitamin D intake, as we already know, since sun exposure is so important, um, you're going to misclassify a lot of people. So there could be people who are only consuming 150 IEs per day, but they're outdoors every day. You know, they're spending a lot of time in the sun. Um, and so by putting them in this category, you're really misclassifying them in terms of their vitamin D status. So that's one of the weaknesses of just assessing vitamin um, intake or supplement use alone. 
So some studies then have tried to use sunlight exposure and incorporate that into their exposure assessment. Um, this was a study by Knight et al. in 2007. They asked women to report different sun behavior activities throughout the lifetime, and I just presented the results from 10 to 19 years. So they're asking women to recall their behavior when they were 10 to 19 years of age, um, which I'm sure is very difficult to do. But um, it can be done. There are ways to, to do it, um, although it can't be validated. Um, and so they basically ask questions like, how many days did you spend outside? Um, how many different outdoor activities did you have? Did you have an outdoor job? Did you cover your limbs when you were outside? Um, does your skin burn or get darkened? And um, these were the, I think these were the adjusted odds ratios. Um, again, inverse association. So it looks like for most of these, it, um, it's supporting the hypothesis uh, that, that sunlight exposure, hence vitamin D, may be preventive. And so there's several inverse associations uh, in the right direction. Um, and if your limbs were, co were covered, um, yes, actually was associated with increased risk, which again, it supports the hypothesis. Um, so again, interesting results, but um, can't validate these findings. You know, the, the recall certainly would be a difficult thing um, to validate or to quantify. So we have this objective measure of circulating 25-hydroxy that we can measure in blood. And this has been done in a number of studies. And I'm going to present results from one study that I was involved in um, in North Carolina, which was the Long Island Breast Cancer Study Project. The PI is Dr. Marilyn Gammon, who was at UNC. And um, she conducted this study. It was actually a federally mandated study to examine environmental exposures in breast cancer. But in the meantime, collected a lot of other data on dietary factors, physical activity, um, envir other environmental exposures, occupation, and everything. So we examined um, the data from this study and um, took blood samples and measured 25-hydroxy-D in relation to breast cancer risk. And this was published last year. We can, this was just in the control population describing vitamin D deficiency by different categories of age, race, BMI, and season. And similar to what you would expect um, with increasing age, vitamin D deficiency tended, well, this, I guess, jumped around a little bit more, but tended to be higher with increasing age. Um, race, 49% uh, non-whites were categorized as vitamin D deficient compared to 26% of whites. With BMI, um, again, increasing vitamin D deficiency with increasing BMI. And then it varied by, by season of blood draw with the lowest percentage deficient in those summer months, which is what we would expect if people are spending more time outdoors at that time. And here are the odds ratios then for breast cancer in relation to 25-hydroxy-D. So you can see with increasing concentration of 25-hydroxy-D, there was a decrease in the odds ratio for breast cancer. And then if you look at it as, as a continuous variable, um, this is also significant. So it looks like, you know, the, in this, this highest category of greater than 40 nanograms per ml is where we see the strongest effect. And there have been other studies, um, again, that have examined circulating levels in breast cancer. Um, the results, as in all of epidemiology, tend to be inconsistent, um, although tend to be a little bit more towards the side of, yes, they are supporting the hypothesis. Um, 
but one hospital-based case control study found um, increased risk for those in the lowest level compared to the highest level. Um, and then some other case control studies, well, this, this is ours, but then another one found decreased risk. Um, and then nested case control studies within cohort studies, um, the effects were not as strong. In fact, didn't see anything in this one. So some inconsistency again, and you can think about blood draws. Um, yes, they're more objective than questionnaire assessment of exposure, but we are only measuring blood at one point in time. And in particular for the case, the case control studies that were not nested within a cohort. You know, we're taking a blood sample after a woman has already been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so temporality is an issue with those types of associations. Um, and there's just, you know, other, re other reasons why 25-hydroxy-D just in the blood may not be the best measure for, um, I shouldn't say it's not the best. It's probably better than the questionnaire assessment, but it is limited. There are limitations to it. Um, it's comparing, it is, it's comparing the opposite of everybody it's else. So it's, it's, it's supportive of the hypothesis, yeah. Thank you. Do they all adjust for the same stuff of variables? Do they adjust for season? Uh, well, it depends on the study to, uh, as to whether they do that, if they collected them. They probably, most of them had season. I don't remember what they all adjusted for, but it is really important to adjust for like BMI and physical activity, um, other things that might be affecting vitamin D that also could affect breast cancer. Okay, so there have been two clinical trials now that, um, that have examined vitamin D supplementation with a breast cancer mm -hmm. outcome. Um, the first one I'm gonna show you is, was published in 2007. There's one more. Um, and there were a lot of comments, a lot of, a lot of letters to the editor, a lot of commentaries on this study because no one wants to believe it. But it actually found um, a decreased risk of breast cancer among the calcium and vitamin D group. So both of these trials I'm showing you supplemented with both calcium and vitamin D. There haven't been any that have just used vitamin D alone. And the original intent of this study was to look at, at, at hip fractures or fractures in women. And so that's why they were using both calcium and vitamin D. But in secondary data analysis, they have, they have examined this in relation to breast cancer. Um, so this is the placebo group, fraction cancer-free. Uh, the calcium and vitamin D group had a relative risk of 0.4. This was significant. Um, but again, there have been a number of, of criticisms of the study, one of them being that there were only 19 breast cancer cases that were diagnosed in this trial. So it's a very small number of cases for which to rely on, on the results. Um, the interesting thing about it, they used uh, 1,100 IUs of vitamin D, which is a much higher level than uh, what we normally see. You know, the, the standard, the RDA is, is 400 IUs. Um, so they did use a higher dose. And I'm pointing that out because in the next study, this is the Women's Health Initiative, this was also was a trial of calcium and vitamin D, but they only used 400 IUs of vitamin D. And they allowed women to, um, to take vitamin D if they wanted to, whether they were in the placebo group or the, the intervention group. So there wasn't a lot, a lot of control going on, um, at least not that we know of. Um, but they found no effect. So really there was no association, no, no effect of the calcium and vitamin D in this group on breast cancer. And this was after you know, about eight years of follow-up. So, they, uh, mm -hmm. they let women in the placebo group take they, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the 
It does. Um, so, again, clinical trials, you know, we think of them as the gold standard. Um, sometimes they aren't. Sometimes it's really hard to assess or, you know, answer the, the questions that we're interested in answering and doing it in a population in a controlled situation is, is difficult. Are these postmenopausal women or um, um, what's it say? high risk or anything like that? I'm trying to remember the age range for, this is the Women's Health Initiative. In one of the observational studies, yeah, yeah. Um, right, and that's inconsistent. I mean, that was one study, but the, there have been other studies that have found it only in postmenopausal women and not in premenopausal women. So, um, Susan, in the previous slide, mm -hmm. what was the author's claim about vitamin D? Um, I think that they. I think the difference here was that the calcium and vitamin D group was significantly different from the placebo group, but not significantly different from the calcium only group. Um, and I don't remember. I don't remember exactly what they, you know, what they stated. But the intent. I mean, the, the intention of the paper was that vitamin D may be responsible for this. And that was nine that was found in this group. Nineteen. There were nineteen breast cancer cases diagnosed. Because again, this was not the, the original intent of this study was not to study breast cancer, but in secondary analyses, they followed the women and figured out, you know, who got breast cancer, who didn't. But there were only 19 cases diagnosed in the whole study. And then the other thing after this one was that I, I know it wasn't breast cancer focused, but the mm -hmm. iron age was that when the placebo group also received vitamin D as well. You mean like did they measure? Did they ask the placebo group who was taking vitamin D and? Oh, so the other study right. did not have a calcium only arm. They only had a calcium and vitamin D arm mm -hmm. of the study. Um, and so you can't distinguish the effects of calcium and vitamin D in this study at all. Um, but there were no effects for the, the intervention group anyway. So it looks like neither of these studies supports that vitamin D is related. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's true, but again, you have to think about the the um, the limitations, um, the fact that it was only 400 IU's in this study. Um, these are relatively short follow-up periods when we're talking about cancer diagnosis, which could have a long latency period. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, it's true. They don't. Neither one of them support it, but I don't think they give a definitive answer as to whether or not vitamin D supplementation is going to affect breast cancer risk in the general population or in you know, a younger population perhaps, or um, especially with this dose. I mean, it, that just, it's, it's a very small dose. Too many limitations. To right, which is, which is what happens in most of our clinical trials of cancer. Mm -hmm. Right, very large. Yeah, I think it was. It was. Yeah, I want to say South Dakota or Nebraska or something where like somewhere out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, but given this, the interesting thing is that there is a very large clinical trial now underway, being sponsored by the National Cancer Institute on vitamin D, 
and omega-3, because there's been a lot of, of interest in omega-3 in cancer as well. Um, you can go to their website. I just copied this from their website, thevitalstudy.org. Um, <coughs> basically, they're going to enroll 20,000 men and women, look at vitamin D, about 2,000 IUs per day. So again, that's a, that's a good hefty dose. Um, and look at a number of different outcomes like cancer, heart disease, stroke. Um, I think it's, it's going to be run by Harvard, looking at some of these other things. But again, this is only going to be among women 65 or older or men 16 and older. So, you know, the thing about clinical trials for cancer outcomes, you have to enroll people who are at high risk or who are older um, in order to have enough outcomes within the time frame of the study to be able to come up with, a, you know, an answer. Um, so, you know, this will, this will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see the results of this study, to see if it's different from all the other clinical trials that have been done. Um, but if it is null, then the question is, okay, why? Is it because we only used, a, a, you know, an older population? If we started earlier, would it be better? And so, in general, I just, the, I guess the point I want to make is that clinical trials may not always work for every type of exposure we're interested in. And so we need to rely on observational data the totality of the evidence. Um, and I think I've talked about some of the things that are challenging with studying vitamin D in observational studies. And so one of the things we aim to do is to uh, create a new method for assessing skin pigmentation and sunlight exposure so that we might be able to better improve the methods of, of vitamin D exposure in observational studies. And I'll show you some of that later. Um, but first, I just want to talk about vitamin D and breast cancer aggressiveness. This is an area that really wasn't uh, examined um, prior to us starting this study. This is a pilot study that we did with um, the tissue bank here at the South Carolina Cancer Center. And we enrolled 144 women who've been diagnosed with breast cancer between January 2008 and June 2008. The blood sample was collected within about five years of diagnosis, and we measured 25 hydroxy D in the blood sample. Um, these are just descriptive stats of the, of the population. The average age is about 54. You can see the mean concentration of vitamin D was higher among European Americans than African Americans. Um, you can see the percentage of BMI uh, in this population, and then the, the stage of disease. So, um, again, like a higher, or I guess a higher percentage of European Americans were diagnosed at localized compared to African-Americans. And so we examined just 25-hydroxy-D in this population and looked at deficiency, insufficiency, and sufficiency defined by uh, the various cut points. And you can see 60% of African-American breast cancer cases were, uh, fell into the deficiency range for vitamin D. You know, about 40%, 43% of European-Americans were sufficient compared to 20%. African-Americans, so this is similar to what we've seen in other populations. Um, we also examined this by season because we, we were collecting blood samples over several seasons, and you can see, as we would expect, winter, spring, summer, the concentrations of vitamin D increase um, for both African-Americans and European-Americans. And then we examined it by um, stage of diagnosis, so local, regional, or distant disease. And again, you can see the, the difference in mean concentrations just among African-Americans versus European-Americans, but this really striking difference between um, distant disease compared to local or regional. 
especially for African Americans. So suggesting that um, you know, vitamin D may be important in progression of disease, um, may be important for cancer outcomes because these women with the distant disease are the ones who are going to be, have, have a poorer prognosis. Um, there are limitations of this study. Obviously, uh, we don't have data on physical activity intake, sun exposure, skin pigmentation, for which to control any of the analyses. Um, that's mainly due to IRB issues and, and um, confidentiality. We're having trouble being able to contact the women again after they've donated to the tissue bank, but we're working on that. Um, and temporality, of course, is an issue because we, we collected the blood after diagnosis, in some cases up to five years after diagnosis. Um, so again, it's not clear whether you know, vitamin D is predicting aggressiveness of disease or whether there's just some systemic effect or effect of treatment on vitamin D. And again, we only had one blood measurement per subject. So having said that, then we're moving on to um, the, the issue of trying to improve upon our ability to assess vitamin D exposure in observational studies if we don't have a blood sample available or if you don't want to use a blood sample because of the limitations of blood samples, um, what can we do? Um, there haven't been any studies that have really tried to combine all of the different aspects of vitamin D exposure, so skin pigmentation, sunlight exposure, physical activity, diet intake, and supplement use. There's, there's really no study that has, has done that yet, and that's one thing that we're going to attempt to do. And we created, um, with this ProVide study, this is the, the pilot study funded by the Nutrition Center, um, our aims were to create this, this method for assessing skin color that we could mail out to participants and have them assess their skin color um, with, um, to, to, to try to improve our ability to, to estimate vitamin D exposure. And then we also just wanted to examine predictors of vitamin D status among a healthy population of women in South Carolina. Um, it's a pilot study, so again, there's, there's very few subjects. Um, so the, especially the predictors type of, of analyses is gonna be more exploratory. Um, but we have created our um, skin color assessment, and this was in, in um, collaboration with Dr. Cheryl Armstead, who is in the Department of Psychology, and she has done a lot of work with racism and stress and hypertension and other health, health outcomes. And she had created this for African Americans um, using cosmetic color cards. So she went to a cosmetic company and said, let me have some of your color cards, and created a palette um, for women to assess their skin color. And so we expanded this um, to include other colors and, and have um, used it now to measure skin color among European Americans and African Americans in this study. Um, and we're validating this with our um, chromometer. We have a spectrophotometer, which actually, you know, you can hold it up to the skin and it measures skin color very objectively. So we're, we have that data now. We actually just had the last subject come in in December, so we haven't cleaned it all and, and merged it all, but we're working on that. But today I just wanted to show you some of the results from the vitamin D work because we, um, with the help of, of Angela Murphy and, and Mark Davis over in Exercise Science, they measured the vitamin D levels in the blood for us last month, and so we were able to get some of that data, and I'll show you that now. Um, again, this is the same kind of slide, but just among these healthy women, prevalence of vitamin D deficiency, insufficiency, insufficiency. We see very similar rates among healthy women as we did in the, the breast cancer patients, 60% of African Americans um, were deficient, um, about 50% of European Americans were sufficient. Even a, a lower percentage, though, of African Americans fell into the sufficient category here. Um, we also looked at season because, again, we were uh, recruiting women over about a seven-month period, I guess. Um, and you can see that for spring, summer, and fall this time, rates that are the 
concentrations increase for European Americans, however, they didn't for African Americans. Um, so this may just reflect the population that we have, and we only had 20 uh, women in each uh, racial category. Um, and the fact that African Americans may not be spending that much time outside. Um, and then we looked at physical activity because we also measured physical activity um, among these women, which we didn't have in the breast cancer patients. Um, this has been done in the Women's Health Initiative as well, and they found a nice linear trend of, um, with increasing physical activity, you have increasing 25-hydroxy-D. We see you know, a, a hint of that, although there's this blip for women who are in this um, kind of second category of met hours per week. Um, but it looks like those with the highest physical activity had the highest 25-hydroxy-D. And then we also have a questionnaire on sunlight exposure. We asked women to report their complexion, uh, whether it was light, medium, or dark. And these things tended to track, as we would expect, with 25-hydroxy-D. Um, those with dark skin had, had lowest levels of 25-hydroxy-D. The uh, medium complexion um, was, in the, was you know, the highest, or probably not much different than light. But that's because we would expect people who are tanning or spending a lot of time outdoors would have a medium complexion, and so their vitamin D levels might be higher. Um, we asked about hours spent in the sun, different age categories throughout life, and I pulled out one of the questions between 20 and 39 years of age. And again, those people who were spending more time in the sun had higher vitamin D levels. And then sun lamp use, there is some UVB radiation in, in, in tanning booths and sunlight, but not a lot. But still, that, that tended to um, be higher among those who, who reported that they had used some sun, sunlight, sun lamps. So basically what I wanted to do today is provide a summary of the uh, relationship between vitamin D and breast cancer. Um, I hope I've convinced you that vitamin D is essential for optimal health. Um, we know that solar UVB is the primary source of vitamin D, but in the absence of, of UVB, UVB rays, we can um, have food sources or supplement sources that can supply vitamin D. The optimal serum concentrations are greater than 30 nanograms per ml. Again, that's debatable and probably even higher than that for cancer prevention. And so one of the things that um, we've noticed, and it, you know, it's very challenging to establish these independent associations of vitamin D in, in observational studies. We hope that the work that we're doing to try to, to um, assess skin color as well as bring in all the aspects of vitamin D uh, exposure will help to improve our methods for assessing vitamin D. We need validated methods for examining sunlight exposure. We need to assess other factors like skin pigmentation, which really just hasn't been done at all in, in these previous studies. And then one thing that we are working on, which I haven't mentioned yet, is the whole gene-diet interaction as well. Um, we know there are vitamin D associations with breast cancer, and these may vary by genotypes for the vitamin D receptor. Um, there's also evidence that polymorphisms within the vitamin D receptor have different frequencies and different racial groups. So again, that provides support that, that they may be associated with some of these racial disparities. Um, we have sent the DNA samples from the, the breast cancer patients to Bert Ely over in the Department, of or the Department of Biology, and he actually just sent me some data this week on, um, on some of the cytochrome P450s that are involved in metabolizing vitamin D. And so we're going to start looking at some of the gene diet interactions there and see if some of these genotypes predict vitamin D status and whether they predict breast cancer in, uh, in our population. 
So I just want to acknowledge um, the work of our team. A number of people have helped with this. As I mentioned, Cheryl Armstead was the co-PI on that provide study. Um, Brooke Harmon was our project coordinator. A number of um, graduate students and undergraduate students. Becky Rossling was a, a, an undergraduate honors college student who helped a lot with the provide study last semester. Um, she had a SURF fellowship to do that. And um, Mark Davis and Angela Murphy measured our blood levels of, of vitamin D in both of our studies. Um, the tissue bank, of course, was very helpful in recruiting the subjects for us. And then these are some collaborators from the Long Island study. And also want to thank our funding sources, the Center for Research and Nutrition Health Disparities in particular, um, for helping us to complete the research. Thank you. And I'll take any questions. Are there any more? Right, so, right, the estimate is in, in a light-skinned individual, about 10 to 15 minutes, twice a week, if you've got your arms exposed, you know, about, I think they say about 25% of your body exposed, which I don't know what all that equates to, but basically if you've got your arms exposed for 10 to 15 minutes, twice a week, that should give you sufficient vitamin D is the thought. And so the individuals with darker skin may have to spend 30 minutes to get the same amount, but that's the idea doesn't take much. Any other questions? Oh, thanks. That, that's a good question. So we had them assess it at different parts, uh, under the arm as a, an assessment of a spot that's not getting much sun exposure, and then the forehead and the cheek as a, the idea that these are areas that will get sun exposure. And um, from that, we're going to calculate kind of a sun exposure index. They call it like the facultative versus constitutive um, skin ex or sun color, skin color, sorry. Um, and so it basically will take into account that there are some areas that are not exposed. What is the natural skin color versus that area that is exposed to the sun and may tan, maybe tanner. Yes. So would you like to take a stab at the, the um, inconsistency Mm -hmm. the observational epidemiology that, that has a real, you know, yeah. strong literature, and it looks, these things are looking very promising, and then you go to the trial. Right. So it's going to vary, my answer will vary depending on what supplement we're talking about, but, you know, for the beta-carotene trials, um, those were, you know, the observational data suggested um, a dose of beta-carotene that you might get by eating, you know, a few carrots few times a week. The dose of beta-carotene given was probably eating carrot, you know, a few carrots every day as a little bit higher dose, but the blood concentrations that were obtained from the beta-carotene supplement were much higher than what you'd get from the food source. And so there's an issue of dose, you know, and, and bioavailability of that dose. Um, there's been a lot of work since those studies in, in animals, like ferrets. Ferrets are a really good model for studying carotenoids because they um, absorb, or, yeah, they absorb vitamin D, or, sorry, I'm trying to remember um, beta-carotene very similarly to humans. Um, and so they've exposed ferrets to high oxidative stress with high beta-carotene and found that they do have increases in tumors or in cancer. 
Um, and so the idea then was if, if you use smokers only, which is what those beta carotene trials were using because they wanted um, high risk individuals who would um, be getting cancer within the time frame of the study, um, high oxidative stress, high beta carotene may actually make beta carotene act as a pro-oxidant rather than an antioxidant. Um, and that's just not something we could have known from observational studies. Um, so, you know, that's one example. But then it, similarly, you know, it, it's a matter of what group of, what population do you choose for your clinical trial? And is it similar to the population from which the observational data come from? And often it's not. It's a very select population in the clinical trial. Um, and that could be one of the main reasons why we see the discrepancy in results. Any other thoughts? I know. It is a really interesting. Mm -hmm. Right, the hormone replacement. I think, uh, yeah, I think the verdict is still out on that. I don't think that we know what amount to, to recommend at this point. But, but yeah, but the vitamin D deficiency has already been linked with, with this. <coughs> well, right. I mean, you can, I guess you could take the, the, the Institute of Medicine recommendations as a baseline amount and say this is going to, you know, if you consume th those amounts um, at those age groups, then you can prevent the, the deficiency syndromes. Um, but whether or not your, those amounts are high enough to prevent cancer or other right. health conditions, we don't know yet. Okay. So with obesity being a risk factor for breast cancer, mm -hmm. do you think that um, if someone were to um, excuse me, start consuming the recommended levels of vitamin D and that in turn um, help reduce weight or obesity, do you think that would make a significant um, contribution to the mm -hmm. Of breast cancer. So I think your logic is good. What I don't know, I haven't seen that study, so I don't know. Um, I'm surprised to hear that vitamin D may be beneficial in weight loss. That's, I don't know the mechanism behind that. And, you know, I, there is this relationship between vitamin D and BMI. Whether it, the, the temporality of that, I guess, is, is what's in question. So whether just individuals with higher BMI then have lower vitamin D because they're, you know, sequestering it away in their fat stores, or if it's because people with lower vi vitamin D are putting on more weight, you know, or people with higher vitamin D are losing weight. I, I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen that, so I don't, I don't know about that, but I think um, weight loss in general um, is something that's recommended to tr try to prevent breast cancer. Um, it's also been one of the things that's been found among breast cancer survivors, one of the few things we've, we've seen that actually may be beneficial for prognosis. So if, you, um, if you're obese when you're diagnosed, if you can lose weight, uh, well, the thought is that that's going to be beneficial towards prognosis. So 
but that's interesting. I'd like to see that study. Any other questions? Thank you. Appreciate it. So he's got a paper that he's working on looking at melatonin and pollen formation. Okay. And so I started thinking, when you said you were going to do serum vitamin D. Uh-huh. I mean, there's, there are, are there any studies of vitamin D and pollen formation? Well, there, there have been a lot with, yeah, with adenomas. Thanks, you guys for commenting. Um, and in fact, there's some, there's some clinical trials of calcium and vitamin D. And I, and I think it's polyps. Yeah, was it cancer? Right. Um, right. I think it was polyps. But yeah. Well, um, Do you have blood samples? Like you well, then I started thinking. You know, there's, there's. I don't think there's any studies. No, you're just fine. We'll, we'll edit it out. It's no worries. It's all right. Sorry are to interrupt you, you there. Are we being recorded? Yes. There you go. Thank, thank you. In a pocket. Yeah. Is that all right? Here. Yeah. I do. Very high tech. <coughs> sure, I'm just going to give you another minute. I think Robin was going to. <laughs> There's yeah, my son was sick Monday. Yeah. Just fever cold kind of stuff. So they're starting at the schools to cough in and there. I've never had trouble. And I've become completely obsessed with disinfecting my house, but not even that because I'll start spreading through the yeah. family. <laughs> well, that's no fun.
this area, and we're really excited to hear more about what she has to say. Um, in a couple of weeks, Zhuhan Liu will be talking about her work with the NHANES data and rural-urban disparities in children's diet and service activities, so we hope you'll be able to join us for that. Unfortunately, my daughter is sick today, so I'm going to sneak out. If you have any questions for me about the nutrition center, you should feel free to um, look me up on our website, and Tanya Jones can um, email me those questions. Thanks. Thanks, Sonia. <clears throat> I want to thank you all for coming and braving the weather. And I see some of my students here. Thank you all for coming, especially. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to thank the Nutrition Center before you leave real quick. Um, I, as Sonia mentioned, some of the work I'll be presenting today was funded by a seed grant from the Nutrition Center. And so we're very appreciative of that. We have a grant at the NIH that's pending right now that we hope will get funded on vitamin D and breast cancer and, and others in the work. So thank you all for that. Um, I also want to say that right now there's a, a seminar going on at the Cancer Prevention and Control Program, which is my other affiliation besides the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. And um, one of my co-PIs on the Nutrition Center grant is giving that seminar over at CPCP right now, so she couldn't be here, and probably some of our students are over there at this time, um, which is unfortunate, but uh, I'll fill her in later. Um, and also wanted to say, for those of you who don't know what we do at the Cancer Prevention Control Program, a lot of what we do is related to health disparities, racial disparities, and cancer outcomes. And uh, vitamin D is no exception. I'll be presenting some evidence today for how vitamin D might be explaining some of the racial disparities that we see in cancer outcomes. Okay, so if you haven't heard, vitamin D is a really hot topic right now. This is just kind of a crude graph showing um, a search in PubMed of vitamin D and cancer for the past 30 years, and you can see that there's just been, you know, an explosion of, of research in this area. Um, this last bar doesn't even include all of 2010, of course, so it's not the whole five-year period. And I looked, you know, in January there were already 20 papers published on vitamin D and cancer of this year alone. So it's a really hot topic. Um, there's been a lot of debate about it, and I'm going to present some of the epidemiologic literature. Um, suggesting that there is a role of vitamin D, in particular in breast cancer. So the outline will be, I'll talk about vitamin D, what is it, where does it come from, um, some of the anti-cancer properties, though again, I'm going to focus more on the epidemiologic literature. Uh, I want to talk about some of the challenges of studying vitamin D, because there's a, a number of different ways for measuring vitamin D, um, it comes from different places, um, and so there are certain challenges in, as in all of epidemiology, but certainly with vitamin D, different ones that we have to think about. And then I'm going to present results from some of our pilot studies. Um, again, we have one from the Nutrition Center. We had another one from the South Carolina Cancer Center uh, where we examined vitamin D status among breast cancer patients in South Carolina. And I'll conclude and give you some future directions about where we're going with all this. So vitamin D is known as the sunshine vitamin. Um, and that is because most of our uh, exposure, most of the body's stores of vitamin D come from exposure to, to sunlight. Um, so when the ultraviolet radiation, the UVB rays, hit the skin, they convert 7-dehydrocholesterol to this pre-vitamin D form, um, which is further converted to vitamin D. Um, there are other sources of vitamin D, obviously. We can get it from the diet. We can get it from supplements. There are a limited number of foods that contain vitamin D, however, so diet is usually not a big source of vitamin D um, unless you're just not spending any time outdoors, you're not spending any time in the sun. Um, there are two forms of vitamin D, D2 and D3. D3 is, is what we form when we're exposed to sunlight. D2 and D3 both can be um, contained in foods, however, um, 
and in vitamin supplements right now, the companies are um, using vitamin D3 for the most part because there's some literature to, to suggest that vitamin D3 may be more bioavailable, may be more active than D2. There's other literature to suggest they're equal. So um, at this point, it's, kind of, it's unknown which one is better, but the supplement companies are, I guess, erring on the side of caution and using D3 for most of the supplements nowadays. So vitamin D is actually not the active form um, in the body. It has to be hydroxylated. It goes through two hydroxylations, one in the liver to 25-hydroxy-D, again in the kidney and other tissues to 125-dihydroxy-D. And 125-dihydroxy-D is actually, that is the biologically active form, um, and it works via the vitamin D receptor. Um, and as we know, from a historical standpoint, vitamin D is really important in bone health. We've known that for a while. 